Now we're turning again to Mark's Gospel as we have been meditating these Sunday mornings to chapter 2 this morning and the title of my message which will be taken from verse 23 to 28 is Lord of the Sabbath. So we begin to read at Mark chapter 2 verse 23. And it came to pass that he, the Lord Jesus, went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day. And his disciples began, as they went, to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have ye never read what David did, when he had need and was unhungered, he and they that were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and did eat the showbread which is not lawful for to eat but for the priests and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Here again we find our Lord Jesus in the midst of serious controversy. His behavior and the behavior of his disciples has ridden roughshod over the established religious norms of Judaism in that day, the revered rabbinical tradition and interpretation regarding the Sabbath, the Lord Jesus and his disciples had, it seemed, disregarded. They were flying in the face of the tradition of the elders. And it was causing a storm. And so great a squall was being stirred that the religious establishment after this event in particular and the beginning of the verses of chapter 3 would, as we see from verse 6 of chapter 3, begin to plot his death. And of course, as we've led up to, to this particular event, we have seen already how the, the scribes or the scribes of the Pharisees had questioned the Lord and his disciples. You remember after the, the four friends of the paralytic man had put him through the roof to be healed of the Lord Jesus. And he not only healed the man, but he forgave the man's sins. In verse 7, we see that they said, the Pharisees, who can forgive sins but God? This is blasphemy. They question Christ and his authority to forgive sins. Then in verse 16, again of chapter 2, we see that Levi has believed in the Lord Jesus and followed after him, and he gathered a number of his friends together in his home, and the Lord Jesus was eating with them. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? How can he do this? Have contact with these unclean people. You remember that Pharisee literally means to be separated. Separated ones. And then in verse 18 in the same context. 
You remember that we believe that this was an actual Jewish fast day, that the Lord was feasting with these sinners. And they asked the question, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? Again, ignoring the tradition of the elders and our question this morning in verse 24. Why do they on the Sabbath, after the Lord and his disciples had gone through this cornfield and plucked some corn, why do they do on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? Now this particular incident we're looking at today, as the others of course, graphically demonstrates the truth of the three illustrations that we studied in our last Sunday morning from verse 20 to 22. And we're confronted again with the stark contrast between dead, legalistic, mournful, religious forms and the living liberty of the joy of the life of grace that is found in our Lord Jesus. Remember how he illustrated the difference? It's like the difference between a funeral and a wedding feast. It's like the difference between an old garment that you try to patch up with new cloth and a new piece of clothing that is completely new. It's the difference between putting new wine in old wineskins that will be burst eventually and giving new wineskins to hold the new wine. The difference between dead legalistic religion characterized here in Judaism in Jesus' day, and the new life that is found in the grace and joy of Christ. Now this particular incident that graphically illustrates that stark contrast, I want to bring it to you this morning under four headings. First of all, there is an accusation of the Pharisees to the Lord and his disciples in verse 23 and 24. Then, there is an answer. The answer that the Lord gives in verse 25 and 26. And then the Lord gives in verse 27 an application to that answer so that we would know how to apply the principle that is found in his response to the Pharisees. And then finally, and, and most greatly in verse 28, there is an annunciation concerning who the Lord Jesus, the suffering servant, really is. Let's begin verse 23 and verse 24 with this accusation. And it simply is stated like this. Why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? Now at the beginning of verse 24 it tells us that the Pharisees said these words unto the Lord Jesus. Now that in the Greek language is not in the aorist past tense when it says the Pharisees said. It is in the imperfect tense which emphasizes that the Pharisees kept on saying. That's the sense. The Pharisees kept on speaking to him about this matter. They had seen he going through the fields, his disciples with him, his disciples plucking the corn on the Sabbath day, and they would not let it go. For as far as they were concerned, he, the Lord Jesus, and his disciples had transgressed the law on the Sabbath. So they kept at it. Why do you do this? Now, of course, previously at Levi's home on this fast day, we presume, they had spoken to the disciples. Why do John the Baptist's disciples fast and the followers of the Pharisees fast 
and your disciples. You disciples don't. They hadn't the guts to face the Lord Jesus, but now they're getting more brazen. And they come to the Lord and says to him, why do you do this? Now, it doesn't record that the Lord was plucking grain in the field. He may well have been. But it doesn't say that. It was his disciples. But what you have to understand is our rabbi was held responsible for the behavior of his disciples in Judaism. So if your disciples were doing something, it was assumed that, that, that you had condoned it or even allowed them or, or taught them to do so. So here we have, and Kenneth Weiss translates it very well, the Pharisees kept on saying to him, Behold, or observe that you will. Why are they doing on the Sabbath that which is not lawful? Now here's the big question. Was the Lord Jesus doing something that was wrong? Was the Pharisees' accusation correct regarding the behavior of Christ and his disciples? Well, we need to understand a little bit about the Jewish Sabbath to answer that question and to discern whether there's any weight in the Pharisaical accusation. Of course, the Sabbath was cherished by the Jews as a sacred institution. And though the Sabbath day principle, the Sabbath rest, was established at creation, the Jewish ordinance of the Sabbath law, the religious rite and practice, was only given to the nation of Israel after they came out of Egypt in Exodus 20, and we read of it also in Nehemiah 9. It was a special sign between Israel as the covenant people and Jehovah as the covenant-keeping God. And if you want to read more about that, you can from Exodus 31. So it was unique to the nation of Israel. Now, the law of the Sabbath expressly says that it is not illegal for a hungry soul to take some of his neighbor's fruit or grain, provided that he doesn't fill a vessel with it, or take a, a, a threshing harvesting tool to it. Let me show you this from Deuteronomy 23, if you turn uh, to it with me. Deuteronomy 23, verse 24. The law of Moses states, When thou comest into thy neighbor's vineyard, then thou mayest eat grapes thy fill at thine own pleasure. But thou shalt not put any into thy vessel. And when thou comest into the standing corn of thy neighbor, then thou mayest pluck the ears with thine hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle unto thy neighbor's standing corn. So as far as the law of Moses is concerned, neither the Lord Jesus nor his disciples were, were doing anything wrong. So what was the Pharisees' problem? Well, their problem was, as with much of the law of Moses, the Pharisees and the scribes had developed their own extra rules and elevated their own human laws to the point of infallibility, to the status of being equal to Scripture. Now, as an aside, let me just uh, express a word of warning to us as believers today who are people of the book particularly the New Testament, but the Old also, that there's a danger, even in our adherence to New Testament Scripture, that we develop the Scriptures farther than the Scriptures allow and permit us to be developed. 
There's a danger that we say more than the scriptures say and we fill in the spaces and read between the lines and then begin to think that those particular interpretations are infallible. Now, Jewish tradition did this regarding the Sabbath by stating 39 acts that they said were strictly forbidden. Now, if you were to turn to Exodus 20, where the law of the Sabbath is enshrined, Moses said, But the seventh day is the Sabbath day of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. Moses had prohibited work on the Sabbath day, but he didn't give many specific incidents of what would be wrong to do on the Sabbath. Now we have some. In Exodus 35, the law states that it's wrong to kindle a fire for cooking a meal. In Numbers 15, 32 following, it's wrong to gather fuel. And you remember the incident of the little man that gathered sticks on the Sabbath day for his fire. And he was condemned for it. Jeremiah 17, 21 tells us that it is wrong to, as far as the Old Testament of course is concerned, carry burdens on the Sabbath day. Nehemiah 10, Nehemiah 13 tells us it was wrong to transact business on the Sabbath. But here's where the problem arose. The scribes and Pharisees and, and rabbis in their tradition went further than the scripture. And they even went to the point of informing people how far they could travel. Tra tra travel on the, the Sabbath day. You not believe the verse that they used as evidence for that. They said you're only allowed to travel 200 cubits on the Sabbath, the Sabbath day's journey. And their proof text for that was Joshua 3 and verse 4, where Joshua's taking the children of Israel across the Jordan into the promised land, and he is told... There shall be a space between you and the Ark of the Covenant, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that ye may know the way by which ye must go, for ye have not passed this way heretofore. That was their proof text. That's all you're allowed to travel, though they said uh, it was, I think, uh, 200 cubits on the Sabbath. Now here's the problem, personally, for the Jew that was brought up in this particular religious culture. In short, the Sabbath day, like most of the other Jewish practices, had become a crushing burden upon these poor souls. The Sabbath itself had become a symbol of, of a suffocating religious bondage that was squeezing any life that was in these people. And effectively, it was robbing them of their joy in God as individuals, as families, and as a whole nation. Or if I could use the Lord's own illustrations. The Sabbath had ceased to become a celebration, a wedding feast, and was now a funeral. It was no longer a wonderful new garment day, but it was a useless, worn, and torn vesture it was a leaking wineskin. It couldn't hold the new life of their Messiah who had come to them. Now it's interesting. I mentioned these 39 extra rules of interpretation that were added to the law concerning the Sabbath by these Pharisees. 
Four of those 39 rules prohibited these. One, reaping. Two, winnowing, which is simply blowing away the chaff of the corn. Three, threshing, which is separating out the grain by beating it. And then fourth, preparing a meal. That was four of the 39 extra rules. Now, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, the acts of the disciples walking through this field on the Sabbath day, plucking the corn and eating it, could be construed as transgressing these four extra rules. And as far as they were concerned, they were lawbreakers. And because they were the disciples of Jesus the rabbi, he was a lawbreaker also. So get the point. The Pharisees weren't upset because the disciples picked the grain. Deuteronomy 23 allowed them to do that. But according to their hair-splitting tradition, the disciples, as they plucked, removed the husk from the corn and ate the corn, had broken the Sabbath, they said, by reaping, by winnowing, threshing, and preparing a meal. How ridiculous can you get? But you know something? That's how ridiculous legalistic religion gets. So Jesus and his disciples were not breaking God's law, but they were transgressing a man-made interpretation of the rabbi's law that they had enshrined to equal status with God's law. There's where the problem lay. Now let's look at the answer. How did Jesus answer? Verse 25 and 26. Now, let, let me first of all, I'll deal with what the Lord's answer was in a moment or two, but I can't get past how the Lord answered. And I love how the Lord answers these Pharisees throughout the gospel writings. It's masterful. And often he answers a question, you'll notice, with a question that, that these Pharisees couldn't answer without condemning themselves. And the irony of his answer here in verse 25 and 26 is he's asking these scribal Pharisees who claim to be experts in the Old Testament law, have you not read? These Pharisees knew the Old Testament back to front and, and yet with all their knowledge, with all their supposed expertise in interpretation, they had missed the whole point of them. Let me remind you of a couple of other occasions the Lord Jesus used this answer. Have you not read? We dealt with it looking at heaven not so long ago, this incident where uh, some religious people who did not believe in the resurrection were questioning him about that fact, and they referred to the Leverite marriage in Mark 12, and they said, now there were seven brethren, giving a hypothetical situation, and the first took a wife, and he died and left no seed. And then the seven had her after each brother died, and there was still no seed left. Last of all, the woman died, and they posed to the Lord Jesus. In the resurrection, therefore, if you believe the Sadducees are implying in such a, a ridiculous idea. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? And we read on. 
Do ye not therefore, the Lord Jesus said, err, because ye know not the scriptures, neither the power of God. Have ye not read in the book of Moses, high in the bush God spake unto them, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Have ye not read? Ye experts in the law, have ye not read? And then we read later on Matthew 19 when the issue of divorce and marriage is presented to the Lord. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they shall the twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together that no man put asunder. Have you not read about this matter of marriage? And then the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus when everybody's praising him in Matthew 21 when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple and saying Hosanna to the son of David they were sore displeased and said unto them Hearest thou what these say and Jesus saith unto them Yea, have ye never read Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise and then Luke 10, just before the Lord Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? He supposedly was an expert in it, but he didn't understand it. Now, let me say, there is such a lesson in this Phrase that is only part of the answer of the Lord Jesus to us. What is the lesson? Well, first of all, from the Lord's perspective, the lesson is we must read and know the Scriptures. And it's only through this book that we will discover God's will. And in times of crisis and personal dilemma, the Spirit of God will bring out of us the word of God that we have put into us. And a case in point regarding that is the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where three times from the book of Deuteronomy mine, he answers the devil's accusations. But there is another lesson from the Pharisees' point of view that we need to learn. And that is mere knowledge of scripture is useless. Did you hear that? Mere knowledge of Scripture is useless if you do not interpret it correctly and you do not apply it correctly. And here is the, the heavy import of, of that principle to us as far as the Pharisees and the Lord were concerned and the Jews of his day. Their interpretation and their application of the Sabbath law was robbing others of joy and satisfaction in God. And it proved that they had gotten it wrong somewhere. And friends, you see, if our interpretation of Scripture and application robs us of joy in Christ, we can be sure we've got it wrong somewhere. Now, what was the Lord's answer? That's how he answered, but what was his answer? Well, look at it. What did David do? Verse 25 and 26. What did David do in this similar situation? Now, 
He's referring to 1 Samuel 1, verse 21. You can read it when you go home. David had been anointed king. And of course, he was rejected. And instead of reigning in Jerusalem, he was hunted down by Saul like a partridge. And when he got to the stage of having no longer any provisions, the Bible says he went hungry to the house of God. That was the tabernacle in Nov. And he asked five loaves of common bread from the priest. And the priest couldn't give him any common bread because there wasn't any. And all the bread there was was the show bread that was only permitted to be eaten by the priest, Leviticus 24. And what happened, you see, there were 12 loaves of showbread breaked every Friday, and then those 12 loaves of showbread were placed on the golden table of showbread, which is in front of the Holy of Holies, and they were placed there on the Sabbath, and then others were removed later on and given to the priests. So the old bread was given to feed the priests, and it was probably this old bread that David was given, and his men also ate. Now, here's the point. The Lord is implying from this story, though theoretically it was illegal, according to Leviticus 24, for David to do this, God didn't rebuke David. God didn't judge David. Now notice the connection in verse 24 and verse 26. The Pharisees' accusation is, why do you do on the Sabbath that which is not lawful? Now, they were accusing him wrongly, according to Deuteronomy 23. What they were doing was lawful. It was their added rules that he was breaking. But the answer that the Lord gives in verse 26 is, David did eat the showbread, which is not lawful. It is really not lawful. He was really breaking God's law. Now, here's the Lord's point. If David had actually broken the law of God by eating the showbread, and yet God didn't rebuke him, how more blameless are my disciples when they, under similar circumstances, they're hungry, are eating, and not breaking the law, but only breaking the tradition of the Pharisees. The underlying truth of this is very instructive because the Lord Jesus Christ himself like King David had been anointed king. He was their Messiah. And yet he's not reigning. He is rejected. And here's his disciples, his followers like David's, picking grain as they traveled, which showed that just as Israel was in Saul's day, Israel was in Jesus' day. They were not right with God. The Pharisees should have been feasting in the presence of the Lord Jesus and his disciples. But what were they doing? They were plotting to kill him. What is the practical lesson in this answer to us? Well, when David, God's anointed, was rejected, as far as the priests were concerned in his day, it was far more important to minister to David and to the needs of his followers than to preserve the order of the tabernacle. And that might shock you. But after all, what is being said in this story is men are more important to God than ordinances. God is surely more concerned with meeting people's needs than he is with protecting the religious traditions of men. 
And the Pharisees had got their priorities totally confused. And in Matthew's account of this same event that we're studying this morning, he adds this little phrase and statement. The Lord says to them, but if he had known what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Ye would not have condemned the guiltless. You've got it all wrong. You're protecting your religious traditions at the expense of the needy. And I will have mercy upon them rather than your sacrifice. So we've seen the accusation and the answer. Now an application. And the Lord doesn't leave it up to us to apply it. Verse 27. He saith unto them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Now interestingly, he said to them is also in the imperfect. You remember how I said in verse 24 that the Pharisees saying to them was continuing to say to them? Well, now he is continuing to say to them. It's not something that he's just mentioned as he bypasses in conversation, but it's taking him a lot of talking to get across to these legalists who've been warped by religious rites and tradition what the point of the message is. The Sabbath was made for man, not man. For the Sabbath. Now, believe it or not, some rabbis actually taught and believed that human beings were created in order to keep the Sabbath day. And our Lord Jesus had to teach these experts in the law that the Sabbath was instituted by God for man's benefit, not for his bondage. It was God's loving provision, the law says. God gave it to man for rest. He gave it that they might worship him and enjoy worship of him. And certainly what the Lord is implying is the Sabbath was never intended to prohibit works of necessity, deeds of mercy and kindness and love and grace. And these legalists had turned what God had given to Israel for a benefit into a bondage. And it was killing people. It was squeezing all the joy and satisfaction in their faith out. The principle the Lord is giving us here is the Sabbath was given to Israel only as a means to an end. It was a means to the end of benefiting. Helping these poor, sinful people. And can I take out of that a general principle which I think will follow through right throughout the Gospels and right throughout the Epistles, and it's simply this, that every spiritual practice that we are engaged in should be judged upon this principle. Is it a benefit or is it a bondage? If it robs us of our joy in God, if it prevents us helping others, that means it has become a bondage, not a benefit. And according to Christ, it has outlived its usefulness. That's the application. Spiritual ordinances, spiritual practices, are for our benefit, not for our bondage. 
But fourthly, in verse 28, there is an annunciation. And this is the greatest part of the text as far as I'm concerned. Therefore, the Lord said, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees, where they were coming from was this. And it was the same with these other questions like who can forgive sins but God, etc. Who does he think he is? This Rabbi Jesus, who... I mean, he's just overturning all our traditions, our law, as far as we're concerned. What gives him the right to make a pronouncement like this? This is what gives me the right, Jesus says. The Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now, the Greek word for Lord there is kurios, which is used simply to mean a person to whom a thing belongs, an owner. I own the Sabbath. It's talking about a person who has the authority to possess or dispose, to keep or give away a thing. And the Septuagint is the Old Testament in Greek. And the word curious is used there to translate the title of God. Creator. The one who has created all things. And what Jesus is saying here is the Son of Man. I am the one who gave the Sabbath for your benefit. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And I am telling you that you are using it as a bondage, not as a benefit. He gave it in the first place, so he has the right to pronounce what is permissible, what is forbidden on that day. And again, again, the scriptures, you find out this title for God, the Lord of the Sabbath, or the Sabbath of Jehovah and here he's claiming to be God in a roundabout way. And they would have understood this statement as a claim to deity. And here we have Mark setting forth this lowly servant who is suffering as the Lord of the Sabbath. And these religious Pharisees couldn't see it because they wouldn't see it. And the less they would see it, the less they could see it. I wonder, is there someone here today and you are unwilling, you are resisting seeing the wonder that is in Christ as the saviour of the world and potentially your saviour too. Beware, there is a spiritual law here that we see embodied in the Pharisees because they would not see Christ and refused to see him as Messiah. They got to a point in the gospel writings where they couldn't see any longer. That could happen you. Let me conclude. In the words of a commentator, and a lot of the stuff this man says is erroneous and absolute nonsense, but he got this right. Listen. If ever the performance of a man's religion stops him helping someone who is in need, his religion is false. People matter far more than systems and ordinances, and one of the best ways to worship God is to help men. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying this morning. It's not that we reject spiritual ordinances and, and religious practices. No, no, we don't reject them. We don't get rid of them all. No, no. But we keep them in perspective. 
Listen to what the Lord said to the Pharisees, Matthew 23, 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye have these ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. Now, did the Lord say you shouldn't have done these things? No. He says, these you should have done, but not left the greater, weightier matter of the law undone. Indeed, the best way to use sacred things and religious practices is to use them to help men. That's why the Sabbath was instituted. That's why I believe every spiritual ordinance is instituted to help us as believers and to help even the lost. And that, in fact, is the only way that we can really offer up all these ordinances to God if we're using them to serve others. That commentator goes on to say, The showbread was never so sacred as when it was used to feed the starving men of David. The Sabbath was never so sacred as when it was used to help those who needed help. The final arbiter in the use of all things is love, not law. Oh, please don't miss that. The final arbiter in the use of all things is love, not law. Can I finish this conclusion with this story? I don't know whether you've ever heard the story of the fourth wise man, have you? Anybody ever heard that story before? I know it's news to some of you that there were three wise men. Of course, we, we don't know that there were three wise men. And this is not a true story, by the way, so don't be adding it into the back of your Bible. It's a fictional story by Henry Van Dyke, and it was made a film in 1985, and Martin Sheen starred as the fourth wise man, and his name was uh, Artaban. And the story goes that he set out to follow the star, like the rest of the three wise men. And he took with him a sapphire, a ruby, and a pearl beyond price as gifts for the king. So he was going to join in with the gold frankincense and mirror of the others. And he was riding, and as he was going along to meet his three friends at the agreed meeting place, he was hurrying because the time was short, and he knew that if he was late, they would go on ahead of him. And suddenly... A dim figure was on the ground, lying before him. And it was a traveller who had been stricken with fever. Now if he stayed and tried to help this man, he'd be too late for the other three wise men. But he decided to stay, and he helped the man, he healed the man, but now he was alone. And Artaban needed camels and bearers to help him across the desert because he'd missed his friends and their caravan. So he had to sell the sapphire. Because he helped the man, he had to sell the sapphire to buy the camels and the caravan. And he was sad that that would mean that he wouldn't be able to give the sapphire to the king when he met him. So he journeyed on and in due time he came to Palestine and to Bethlehem. But again, he was too late. Joseph and Mary and the baby had gone. And then there came soldiers to carry out Herod's command that the children should be slain. Now Artaban was lodging in a house where there was a little child he had come to love. And when he heard the tramp, tramp of the soldiers' feet coming to the door, 
and the weeping stricken mothers crying out because of the death of their offspring. Artaban stood in that doorway, tall and dark, and he had the ruby in his hand. And when the captain of the soldiers came, Artaban bribed him, gave him the ruby not to enter, and that child was saved. The mother was overjoyed, but the ruby was gone. Artaban was sad because he thought the king would never have his ruby now. Well, for years he wandered looking for the king. For more than 30 years he wandered around Jerusalem. Until one day, the story goes, he heard of a crucifixion. And Artaban heard of this man, Jesus, who was being crucified. And as far as he was concerned, he sounded wondrously like the king. So he decided, I'm going to go out to Calvary. He thought, maybe this one pearl that I now have left, the loveliest pearl in all the world, could buy the life of the king. So down the street he went, and down the street came a little girl. She was fleeing from a band of soldiers. She cried out, my father's in debt and they're, they're taking me to sell me as a slave and to pay the debt. Save me. Artaban didn't know what to do. He hesitated then. Sadly, he took the pearl and gave it to the soldiers and bought the girl's freedom and she was safe. At that moment, all of a sudden, the skies grew dark. There was a great thunder over Golgotha's hill then came an earthquake and a flying tile from a roof hit Artaban on the head and he sank half-conscious to the ground. And that little girl pillowed his head under her lap and suddenly his lips began to move. He said, Not so, my Lord, for when, when saw I thee and hungered and fed thee or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw I thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? When saw I thee sick in prison, and came unto thee? Thirty and three years have I looked for thee, but I have never seen thy face, nor ministered to thee, my king. And then, like a whisper, from very far away, there came low and sweet a voice, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as thou hast done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, thou hast done it unto me. And Artaban smiled in death because he knew that the king had received his gifts. Does he receive ours? The things that we do for him, the practices that we are engaged in, are they for the benefit of others? And when they are, then they will be gifts to God. Father, at the beginning of our service, we sang, O Christ, in thee my soul hath found and found in thee alone. Then we sang, my faith has found a resting place, not in a form or creed. And we have just sung now, thither may I in simple faith draw nigh and never to another fountain fly but unto thee. Lord, let us not draw life or even draw death from anything else but Christ. And let us in all that we do as Christians, all that you have given us to do in your word, 
May we use all these things to our benefit, to our joy, and to the benefit and joy of all people. That they too may be filled with the love of Christ from that living fount above. Hear our prayer and help us to offer up all that we have to you in the service of others. Amen.